0: Thanks, Sarah, as uh, Sarah was talking, I was just convicted of how I've been fairly prayerless this week, um, and that's probably one of the reasons I came in feeling dry this morning. I didn't realize it. it didn't hit me until we started worshiping, and so I just want to confess that to y'all and just say that, uh, man, when we, go, we we've, when we go when we do and do and do, and don't take time to just talk with our father and listen and be with him. Man, we're running on fumes, putting ourselves in a dangerous place. So um, Lord, would you forgive me? Would you fill me up? Um, Would you be here with us and glorify your son, Jesus Christ, and make your word clear? (sighs) Draw us to yourself through your perfect word that Sarah read. We love you so much. Fill your servant. Amen. So this is sermon 2 in in a series that I'm really have been looking forward to for years, maybe maybe long maybe decades. Um just to start at the beginning in Genesis and and we're all so many of us in our culture because of science and because of the enlightenment and the false messages we've been given about how science and and faith are there's a chasm between the two and they're enemies, they're at enmity. Um it's The early chapters of Genesis can kind of scare us, kind of scare us away. And let's, let's ignore those and uh, can we take those seriously? And if so, can we take science seriously? Do we have to be blind to one or the other? Um, so Hugh Ross, he's an astrophysicist and a believer and was an atheist, but came to Christ really through reading Genesis 1. He says, when it comes to the early chapters of Genesis, there are two attitudes there's the secular predominant view in our culture, which says, why should I give serious attention to the message of a book that contradicts, right from the start, the established facts of science? I mean, that's, all, that's the air we breathe. Um, Franz Delitzsch, who was a, he was a German 19th century theologian, he said, all attempts, this is the other view. He said this, all attempts to harmonize our biblical story of the creation of the world with the results of natural science have been useless and must always be so. That's the other side. So we kind of feel caught in the middle sometimes. Here's what I want our view to be, um, with this gift that's unlike anything else. This this gift of God's word and how it starts. Um, when science, this is a quote from um, an astronomer recipient of the Crawford Prize um, that Hugh Ross quotes. He says his name's Alan Sandage. He says when science appears to be in conflict w- with theology, we have no reason to be in conflict with theology. We have no reason to reject either the facts of nature or the Bible's words. Rather, we have reason to, here it is, re-examine our interpretation of these facts and words because sound science and sound biblical exegesis will always be in harmony. So let's have some humility here as we read this text. Um, as a people of God, knowing that this, believing that this is the word of God and pressing into it, the church thought that Galileo was wrong because they thought his, what his views and Copernicus's views contradicted the scriptures. In fact, it was their reading and their um, over wooden and over literalistic reading of the scriptures um, that thinking that the Earth was the center of the world, because the sun goes around and it rises and it sets. And well, that's from our perspective. And the scriptures talk about the four corners, but that doesn't mean that the earth has corners. It's a way of speaking about our experience and what we see. Let's have some humility as they should have, as the church should have. The scripture remained true, but they they were so committed to their reading and their interpretation of the scripture as straight from heaven. Let's have some humility, some, some hermeneutical humility. Um, we must remember what we began with last week. The same God, remember Psalm 19? The same God who, who spoke and made all things has given us this word, this written word, which is perfect. The two are not going to ever conflict, although they might seem to. Like Hugh Ross says, the farther we dig in, the farther a scientist digs into what God's word produced, creation, The more, scientists have way more problems with the fabric of the universe than you do. Why? Because they know a lot more, and the more they press in, the more problems they encounter. But they don't encounter errors. It's the same with God's word. The more we press into it, the more problems we'll have, things that confront us and go, man, I don't understand that. And that's what Hugh Ross said. He said, as I dug into the scriptures, and I'll read from him in a minute, as I dug into the scriptures, I found problems and problems, and he would keep them on the right side of his ledger, but the errors and the mistakes that were in every other holy book, especially when it came to cosmology, the beginnings of all things, how things were created, the errors section remained blank, okay? Lots of problems, but no errors. So let's, let's have some humility. Let's understand that we can press into both God's creation and his word, because his creation is a product of his word. The two are, the two are in harmony. Um, so let me with that said, that little prelude, let me, let me start with point one, just what it's not about, just kind of the, the cow, the, the elephant, the cow in the room, <laughs> I was thinking sacred cow, the elephant in the room, <laughs> mixing metaphors here, what it's not about, okay, when you read as a Hebraist, you know, Hugh Ross is great, he's got a, we're going to have by next week a bunch of books back there to help you, just to recommend to you on, we'll do that per series, and on this series, I'll have about a dozen books that I would say, hey, all these are, I don't recommend, I don't, I'm not standing by every word, but they're helpful, helpful if you if you need a companion. Hugh Ross has got some good stuff. He's an astrophysicist. He knows the word really well. He's not a Hebraist. He's not an Old Testament scholar. Sometimes that can actually hurt you. I, I am, I'm a Hebraist, and I can tell you as a Hebraist and as an Old Testament scholar, when you read Genesis 1, in within the ancient Near Eastern milieu in which it was written, within that those competing cosmologies, Moses writing to his people surrounded by other peoples, Mesopotamians, Canaanites, Hittites. Egyptians, and so on and so forth. Um, the focus of Genesis 1 is not how old is the universe. It's not there. It's not a primary concern. I'm not saying we're not going to address it. In fact, I'm probably going to spend the entire sermon next week talking about it, because I don't want to just dodge that. I want to help you, and I want the chance to dig in myself, so we're going to focus on the next week. But this week, I'm just going to say a few more things, but really, that's not what it's about. It's an imported concern. Why? Why are we so concerned about the age of the universe and the scriptures? Because of 1859, because of Darwin's Origin of Species, which was published in 1859, okay? And his basically saying that everything's super old and everything came from a prebiotic slime. And so, and then we have these days here. And so it's either young earth or Darwin. And if you're an old earth person, you have to, you, you can't believe in a creator. You just have to sort of punt this entire thing. I want to say that's a false war, And I want to say a few things that hopefully help you understand that more. And the next week we'll jump in more to the age thing. But it's to take the age of the universe as a primary concern of this text is to import something that isn't there. And that's called eisegesis, not exegesis, not to pull out what's in the text, but to insert something foreign into the text. It's to be concerned in the past 150 years with something that wasn't, it wasn't a primary concern by the author. What was he saying? What are the major themes that jump out to us. What was he trying to say to his people and to us? That's what we're going to look at primarily today, and then again, don't worry, we'll get in more next week, especially I think to to the the age thing. Okay, um, but so it's anachronistic the age of the universe. It's what it's not about. Point one: it's not about the age of the universe. It's anachronistic. Um, It's also largely irrelevant. I'll bring a lot more of this in probably next week, but Hugh Ross, astrophysicist, he crunched some numbers even when he was a high schooler as an atheist in the process of being converted to believing by the sheer perfection of the cosmological account of Genesis 1 as compared to every other holy book. Nothing even came close. Nothing else even came close. He did some numbers and figured, what are the chances, what are the mathematical probabilities that this author without the author of the universe is without the creator of the universe's help that he got these things right. He's like they're all lined up exactly in the right order. What are the chances? And he's like the chances are beyond a mathematical improbability. They're in the in the realm of mathematical impossibility that without God's words speaking this through this author, this could have been put down. So I'll give you much more of that next week. But old earth, younger, it doesn't matter. You can you can have billions and billions of years. This kind of stuff's not it's not going to happen unless we have a creator, um, and it's not going to be given to us in this way unless he was involved in the writing of this. Um, so, old or young universe aside, the order of events is spot on, says Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist. Um, that said, again, I'm not going to leave this unaddressed. I'll mention a few things, and then we'll, we'll hit it big time next week. Um, this is presented as history. I believe that you can... Let me say this. I believe that you can read this as God's word and as history and as his perfect word to us about how he created all things. And I believe you can even read it as the days being literal 24-hour days, okay? Evening and morning. Um, there are various opinions on that, obviously. And you can you can read that, and there's still room for an old universe that's billions of years old, okay? Not just, not pushing Genesis 1 aside, not taking it, not, very, not taking it not very seriously. Um, this, Genesis 1, is presented as history. As a Hebraist, I can tell you there's a very simple grammatical marker um, that, that re, in Genesis 1, it's called a historical vav plus imperfect, okay? Historical vav is the and. And then God said this. And then this was created. And then this came about the and. That's the vav, okay? And it's a, in the, it's a historical vav is a marker of historical narrative. So, Joshua and his chronicles about how the Israelites waged war against this people, and then they burned this city down, and then they fled at Ai and all this stuff, and, 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 it advances the narrative. It's a historical marker in Hebrew. There's no way around it. That is present dozens and dozens of times in chapter one of Genesis. It's not, it's not poetry, it is elevated language. It's certainly not presented as myth, it's presented as history. And there's tons of order to it, and it's told in that kind of way. Um, so, but there's still, there's lots of mystery around, especially, I want to say this, and I'm going to get into this more next week, Genesis verses one, and, 1, verses 1 and 2. The first verse, when God, they didn't have a word for universe at this time. Hebrew was being written, 3,400 years ago. So the way, the way to say universe and everything that is created was heavens and earth. Okay, And when you combine those two words, heaven, heavens and earth, kind of like when you combine the words butter and fly, it doesn't mean butter plus a fly, like a, a fly with butter on it. It's a different meaning. It's a different semantic freight. It's a new word. Heavens and earth together is a collocation in Moses' Hebrew that meant everything. So in the beginning, God created Heaven, the heavens and the earth, okay? Again, like I said last week, the Hebrews were some of the only people that said, maybe the only in, ancient, in the ancient Near East that said, first thing I'm gonna tell you, there was a beginning. And God was already there. And he spoke and made all things. So in the beginning, God made everything, first verse. And then verse two, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and everything was well and waste or, or empty and void. And then God, God goes about to fill it. How long did that take, those two verses? Don't know. There's a lot of mystery there. To say that we, that we are sure, are sure, are sure that from Genesis 1 all the way through 2-4 was you know, six days and that's it, or seven days and that's it, I think it's a bit presumptuous. I'm going to say that right now, okay? You could still read it as history, it's presented as such, and, 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 and say, man, we are in an old universe. We might not be. We might be in a young universe. I don't know. Science seems to very strongly say, suggest that we are in a place that's billions of years old. Okay, we don't have to push everything off of Genesis 1 and believe that, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay, so we need to let science and and this perfect text inform one another. We need to have some humility. Um, And like I said, another way to see this, there are lots of things that we'll explore next week as well. But, um, so two more things, and then then I'll read something from Ross, and then we'll get to point two, what it is about, okay? Um, In the beginning was a way of, talking in, the, in other parts in the Bible and in, in Hebrew narrative. It was a way of talking about the reign of a king because all this is not just about cosmology and how God make all things, but it's about his reign. It, he rested from his work and he took his seat, as it were, and began to reign over his good creation in his, in his throne room, which was the whole cosmos, and then he put his co-regents, man and woman, over that, to rule and reign with him, right? This isn't, and I'll get to that in the end of the sermon, this isn't just about a cosmology, it's about God reigning over his good creation and inviting us into that, right? Um, At the beginning of the reign of a king, oftentimes, there was a formula and it said, in the beginning, and then that time period was sort of indefinite, and it wasn't counted as part of the reign of the king, and then the years started being counted at some point after that. So this could well be that in the beginning part, there could be an indefinite amount of time, again, in verses one and two. That's one way to look at it. Um, A theologian called John Salehammer, I'll have some of his books back there, likes that. And he, again, he's a Hebraist. He's an Old Testament guy, and he's saying, if we're reading it in accordance with um, ancient Near Eastern kings, Hebraism's what God is doing in this cosmos and reigning, then we've got to be humble here, and we've got to say there's, there's some room here, there's some wiggle room. Another thing, Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist, says that this actually all the events are in proper order um, from the observer's point of view. Because it's basically the base, our basis for um, the empirical, um, for, the, for the scientific method. You make observations, you, uh, you, you, know, you, you postulate a theory, you do an experiment, you record the observations, you come to some conclusions, you retest. It's all sort of here in embryonic form. And he, he contends that a lot of our scientific method actually came from the approach that we have here um, in Genesis 1 and 2. And so he's saying, if you're, if you're see, telling this creation story, not necessarily in the order God did it, okay, but as you would see it from earth, he goes, it lines up exactly with what we know happened. Okay, so another, again, there's room here. There's room to kind of say we don't know everything, but this is presented as history. We believe it to be God's word. There's nothing else like it in the ancient Near East. Let me read to you something that Hugh Ross said. Um, he said, he was, like I said, he was an aspiring astrophysicist born in British Columbia. Brilliant guy. I mean, absolutely brilliant. He talks like a computer. Um, he's got a He's got a ministry that's wonderful that I'll introduce you to later in the back. Um, Reasons to Believe is what it's called. But he, he decided that if there was a God, he, he was atheist, I think raised by atheist parents in a fairly atheist community. And he said, if there is a God, the more he studied the heavens and science, the more he said, it's perfect. I've got a lot of problems, but I don't see errors. If there is a God that's, that's communicated to us through a holy book, there aren't gonna be any errors. He's gonna communicate in the same way lots of problems maybe, no errors. So he started going through the world's holy books, the Bhagavad Gita, um, the Hindu Vedas, the Quran, and on and on, just systematically. And he did it in secret in his room by lamplight after his homework was done at night. This is all in like, he was 17, 18 years old in high school. He'd go to the public library, get the stuff, didn't want his parents to know. He spent like two years doing this. He purposefully saved the Bible till last, Before he got the Bible, he read through all the major holy books of the world and he had a ledger, like I said, errors and problems. And the errors started filling up and so did the problems in every single holy book. The Hindu Vedas say that there are are colonies on the backside of the moon. They didn't know that there weren't back then. Now we do. Errors. There are errors like that in every single holy book. He got to the Bible. He purposely purposely saved it till last because he thought, this is gonna give me the most trouble maybe. And he was astonished to find starting in Genesis 1, the scientific method, the layout in exact order, and he ran the calculations. It's astronomical. This could have been by chance of, of the way things happened as astrophysicists understand it. Um, and he was overwhelmed. And he says this. He says, if God had spoken to humanity through a book or books, I reason God's communication would manifest the same qualities as did the cosmos he created. Science had convinced me that the God of the universe was neither capricious nor careless. On these premises, I began and ended my investigation of the world's sacred writings. While I found words of interest and beauty and truth in each one, each reflected the limited, now known to be erroneous, scientific knowledge of its time and place. Each one except one, the Bible. This particular book, remember, he's an atheist at this point. This particular book stood apart, and dramatically so. From the first page, I could see distinctions. The quantity and detail of scientific content far exceeded what I found in other books. To my surprise, the scientific method was as clearly evident in Genesis 1 as it is in modern research. Most impressive of all, and again, most of this is going to be a book in the back as well, by, by a guy named Kos, Great name. Science, as we know it, came from Christianity. It's our Western inheritance. Um, so this whole divide, like science, the Bible is at odds with science. Rubbish, rubbish. All truth is God's truth. Um, so he said the quantity and detail of scientific content far exceeded what I found in other books. To my surprise, the scientific method was as clearly evident in Genesis one as it is in modern research. Most impressive of all, the four initial conditions and the sequence of major creation events, not just one or two, but more than a dozen, all match the established scientific record. As I pondered how this accuracy could have been achieved, I calculated the odds that the writer could have guessed the initial conditions and correctly sequenced the events, ignoring for the moment the questions about how the writer could have known what they were, and I discovered the odds are utterly remote. That's in the Genesis question. So, okay, what it's not about, everything I just talked about. We're gonna get more into that next week, okay? What it is about. There are, these are things that just jump out at you, especially as you read cognate cosmologies at that time written in that place, okay? Because Moses was speaking to the, his people. They had to be able to understand this. If he started talking about quasars, that would not have been helpful at all, okay? The first thing that jumps out, God alone as the uncreated creator. And that's like, duh, to us. Yeah, God alone. There's only one God he's uncreated, he's, he has an aseity, an ase, his by himself, he exists, he is necessary, nobody made him, and from him come all things. This jumps out in verse one to us. He's just assumed, which as we learned last week is extremely epistemologically advanced and astute, because you have to assume ultimate things. You have to assume they're self-attesting by their very nature. They can't appeal to something higher. There is nothing higher. Okay, I am that I am, says God. So, he alone is presented as the uncreated creator. Nothing else is like that. No other holy books. Only the Hebrews had a holy book that claimed this, okay? Um, this is unique in ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Uh, Hugh Ross, according to Genesis 1:1, the entire universe came into existence brand new, a finite time ago, which we now know there was a beginning. And scientists, as soon as they discovered that the Big Bang almost certainly happened, they started to scramble because they realized that there's a beginning, there's a beginner and that ruffled a lot of their feathers so they're you know they're coming up with all sorts of crazy theories now but it began a finite time ago by the creative action of god this statement reverberates throughout the pages of scripture no other holy book makes such a claim Um, also creation this is another thing that jumps out creation and matter are good like i said last week they're presented as good literally you don't even have to read between the lines for this one Literally, after every day, God says, and and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. At the end, in case you missed it, he saw that it was ma'od tov. Tov is good. He saw that it was ma'od tov, very good. He just puts a capstone on it. Creation's good. It came from him. It's not corrupted. It's perfect. It's beautiful. He loves it. He's going to take care of it. He's going to create his highest creatures to take care of it, right? He's going to be reflected in it. This is, again, this is something like, duh, we know this. No, 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 no. This was unique. This was unique in the ancient Near East. Creation's not a waste product. We weren't made as slave labor. We're not the off product of sexual reproduction by the gods. He made things purposefully from his very word and said, good. I call you good. This is, this is amazing stuff. Very anti-Gnostic. Gnosticism was an ancient heresy in the early church around the time of Jesus and after. And Gnosticism says spirit is higher. You know people that are just super spiritual, but they kind of disdain things of the earth? Eating, drinking, dirt, gardening, whatever it is, you know? No, the Bible blows that up. Spirit isn't better than matter. Matter is good. The only thing that rubber stamps, not rubber stamps, that endorses creation and the goodness of matter possibly more than creation is the recreation through God becoming a man, the incarnation. He, beca- he takes on skin and bones. God himself so endorses the goodness of creation that he becomes one of us. Man, you talk about an endorsement of matter. That's why when we talk about what's to come, we don't talk about being in heaven floating around. We talk about the feast. And this is what we think about. We don't just look back to what Jesus did when we come to table every week. We look forward to the fact that we are going to feast. We are going to revel we are going to be with our king and with one another, and we are going to rule worlds and adventure, and everything that's good about this world is going to be better with no pain and no loss, and it's not going to stop, okay? So that's that's a huge part, and it comes from this, of, the, of what we believe. It wasn't, God didn't make things originally corrupt. They were corrupted. So that's, the fact that they were made good, and we know that they're not, there's a goodness in things, but we're always running away from that goodness. It's always, can I say this? It's always running away from us. Outside things are corrupted and inside, there's something broken inside of us. The fact that they were made good with no trace of evil and brokenness is so encouraging. It's like, I, I knew that things weren't always this way. And they're not going to stay this way either. For the very God who made all, excuse me, who made all things has come back to start the process of remaking them, okay? So creation matter is presented as good. It's pre- presented as ordered and fine-tuned by a, a God of order. So you look at the spaces of the first three days, and then those three, those three days, are, those spaces are filled in days three, four, five, and six. So he makes spaces and environments, and then he fills those spaces and environments. And he puts things like the sun and the moon in to rule the day and the night. And then he puts man in to rule over all the, all the areas, the sea, the earth, the heavens, all that he's made, okay? So there's rule, there's order, there's governance. He's constantly dividing unlike thing from unlike thing. So there's order, there's division. And in that, we see all this diversity, different, truly different things coming from one thing, God. So there's the ancient, probably the number one ancient um, philosophical paradigm was philosophers were constantly trying to figure out, is all thing one thing? Or are all things different? Are they atomized? Are they distinct? And so philosophy is, is just, if you study the history of philosophy, it's a swing between diversity and unity. And here in Genesis 1, we see, yes, there's even a diversity and a unity within God himself, right? He's one God. He's multipersonal. And his creation expresses that. It's unified. It comes from him, but it's so diverse. And we're not all stardust. You hear that phrase kind of tossed around? That's basically what Darwinism believes, that we're all just from a prebiotic soup, from a stew, and this diversity is kind of an illusion. We're all just the same thing. There's, it's a homogenous universe. This says no. Humans are different than primates. And primates are different than flowers. Okay? And stars are different than soil. And it's beautiful. Um, also, he made things according to their kind, and they produce according to their kind. Very anti-Darwinist. I'm not saying anti-old universe. I'm saying anti-everything grew up mindlessly, given just a ton of time from a prebiotic sludge. That's not what we see here. And that's a lie. And there's terrible, terrible evidence for that increasingly on the paleontological scale, um, on the nano-microbiological scale, In the astrophysical scale, okay, and I'll talk about some of the more of that next week. Um, Hugh Ross talks about the anthropic principle. It's uh, the principle that you look at things as they are, and they're fine-tuned. They're fine-tuned. There's a fine. They're fine-tuned, and so there must have been a fine tuner, kind of like a Swiss watch. You come across a Swiss watch on a beach, and your first thought is not, "I guess that just ended up here." And given enough time, it probably just grew up from the soil, from the sand. None of us would think that. He says that running numbers, the slightest of numbers, based on just a few characteristics in the universe for the fine-tuning for us to be alive right now on planet Earth, on the large macro-astrophysical level and on the microbiological level too, makes a Swiss watch look like something that uh, you know, a child put together by putting things in a box and shaking it around. It's just the fine-tuning, the anthropic principle, it's mind-blowing. He says, as of October 1993... 25 different characteristics of the universe were recognized as precisely fixed. If they were different by only slight amounts, the differences would spell the end of existence of any conceivable life. To this list of 25 can be added 38 characteristics of our galaxy and solar system that likewise must fall within narrowly defined ranges for life of any kind to exist. The degree of fine-tuning necessary for the support of life supersedes by many orders of magnitude the very best human beings have ever achieved in the design and construction of instruments, machines, or anything else. So he's talking... He's talking, I, they can do the math on what are the chances that a spacecraft like this, an F-18 or a space shuttle or a Swiss watch would just happen to come about. He's like, that's tinker toys compared to what we, what we just even if you take a few things that we see in the universe and say, what are the, what, how could these have happened by chance? It's mathematically impossible. Um, three of the characteristics of the universe must be fine-tuned to a precision, just three, right, of one part in 10 to the 37th power. Or better. And he goes on. There's so much more. I'm not going to read it. Um, another thing that jumps out at you that is a major concern of Genesis 1 is that humans have massive dignity. Why? We're different from all the other creatures. Because he made us in his own image. He made us alone, humans, male and female, in his image. There are tons of textual indicators. I'm not going to give you all of them, but a few were made. I've mentioned this before. They're, in Genesis 1, things are made sort of in ascending order of importance. Okay, everything's important and everything's good. Um, but notice how he makes the fish and the birds after the spheres, they're living. There's something beautiful and special about them. And then he makes the beasts more complex next. They have a life inside of them that's a little bit different. And then he makes man and woman as the last of his creation. That enough is like, okay, he, this, is the con, this is the cherry on the top of the banana split of his creation. That, that enough tells us that. But then he commissions them, It says, and then he spends a lot of time in Genesis 26 and 27 saying, in his image, in his likeness, he made them. And it kind of breaks into a little bit of poetry right there in Genesis 27. There's some parallelism, which is the chief marker of Hebrew poetry. And sort of there's this rhapsody, this rhapsodizing about how beautiful and good and imaging of their creator in a special and unique way man and woman are. Um, And it's astonishing because Again, that that wasn't the case in other ancient Near Eastern cosmologies. The universe contains 100, listen to this, the universe contains, I was just looking last night late in my backyard up at Orion. Even without glasses on, I could see it. Betelgeuse, his left shoulder, that sort of reddish red giant, it dwarfs the size of the earth. It's just unreal, just that one constellation. Think about how big stars are. They're just massive nuclear factories. Universe contains 100 billion galaxies each with an average of 100 billion stars. 10 billion trillion stars is how many stars we have, what astrophysicists think. You can't even, I can't even start to think about how big that number is. And here's the thing, what's the account of those stars? How much space and attention is given to them? They're almost an afterthought. Okay? In the English, it's and the stars also. In the Hebrew, it's two words, it's even shorter. Etah kokavim, that's it. That's all the attention that's given. And then look at how much attention is given. God pushes back from the table, considers, let us make man in our image, and just rhapsodizes, commissions. And then, and then we get a whole chapter, chapter 2, zooming in on his intimate creation of man and woman. And then the rest of the Bible is about God getting us back, winning us back after we rejected him. It's unreal. Psalm 8, who is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you should regard him. I don't understand, it's amazing, it's amazing. There's so many other textual indicators, I'm not gonna talk about them here, that show that there is this highlighting of the specialness of man and woman. Um, This alone, can I say some extrapolations from this? This alone anchors human worth and dignity. Nothing else does, unless we're made in God's image, you're gonna have a slide toward basically us being stardust and and treatment, relativizing human worth and dignity usefulness. Uh, that person's in a wheelchair and kind of in a vegetative state. Uh, that person hasn't been born yet. Uh, that person's not very useful to Nazis. Those, pers- those people are different race, okay? This alone anchors our dignity. Think about how anti-sexist, another extrapolation. Think about how anti-sexist this text is. Revolutionary. Not just man made in God's image, but he takes the, he takes the pains to say, man and woman, the last line in verse 27, male and female, he created them. This is how he really shows off his image through both male and female. Nothing else like that in the ancient Near East, I can assure you. Nothing else like that. Amazing. Super anti-sexist. Um, and in, in, in the ascending order of complexity and beauty, woman is made, especially in chapter two, we see the zoom lens on this, after man. We're waiting in the narrative with bated breath to see what she's gonna be like, and then boom, when Adam sees her, he starts just singing and exulting because she's so amazing. This is, there's nothing else like this. Um, It's anti-racist, another extrapolation about the dignity of humans and made in God's image, purposefully not as a byproduct, not as slaves to serve the gods. It's anti-racist, how? Easy, if we all came from the same two people, think about racism and how dumb it is. Are you kidding me? We're all brothers and sisters. We're all sons and daughters of God. Like, it obliterates racism. It's amazingly forward thinking. Um, And can I posit that if you don't have this, Racism has to exist. Because of our evil, we will find a way to be racist if we deny this text. This anchors an anti-racist thing, and it's beautiful. Um, Last thing on on this, um, the account of our first parents is not one of polygenesis. Polygenesis means that people were made in mass at first for the gods, for slave labor. Do you know that every other ancient Near Eastern account is polygenetic? Every other ancient Near Eastern account The people were made to carry the loads of the gods and to be their slaves. Only in this account, by contrast, do we have monogenesis, man and woman. Think about the personalness, the intimacy, the up-closeness, this relationship that's forming. God brings the woman to the man like a father brings his daughter to the altar and marries them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's nothing else like this. Um... He blesses them, he gives them rule. Rather than making them a slave labor, he serves them and then says, get, get to work, you have work to do, to image me, so good. And that's the other thing, work, work as good pops from this text. Work, get this and I'll move on from this point, work is not a product of the curse. It's made boring and laborious and painful and unproductive and hard because of the curse. But it exists before the curse. And so work gives it dignity and it images God in a way we produce, we create, and when we do that, we image our God. Beautiful. And that's part of what the Savior came to bring us back into. And then um, just as work is good, rest is good, because God rested, and then he calls us to rest as well on a regular basis. And that's one of the things we do on Sunday. We come together to rest from our labors, to worship together, to receive these truths, to remind ourselves of these truths. truths briefly, um, and then I close, Uh, on the third point. Um, Marriage is good. We're going to have a whole sermon on marriage is good, at least one. Marriage is good. Um, You see that big time in chapter two, where again, this is the wide angle lens, but then chapter two is a zoom lens, where it complements chapter one. But it really shows how beautiful marriage is, and how every time Jesus is questioned about marriage, where does he go back to? What text in the Bible? This text. Every time, Genesis 1 and 2, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, okay? This is our anchor for, unless marriage is instituted by God, if it's a human creation, it's gonna kind of become whatever we want it to become. This anchors marriage as between a man and a woman, not between a man and women, not between a man and a man, as between a man and a woman. And again, on that note, it also says, it screams this, gender is good. Everything I've said so far is sounded nice to your ears, but in our culture, when I say gender is good, Some of you are nodding if you're a little older. If you're younger, you're like, I'm getting nervous right now. Okay, because in our culture, that's kind of a no-no to say that. You can be whatever gender you want to be. There are going to be things about the word, and I'll finish in a bit with, in a few minutes, with this point more, so I won't belabor it here. But don't just take the things you like in God's word and then the stuff you don't like, push it aside. Because guess what? You'll never learn anything. The word of God won't help you at all. It can't challenge you. Think about a friend or a spouse whom you wouldn't allow to challenge you at all. How deep and profound and helpful would that relationship be? Can you imagine? It's not gonna change you. It's not gonna, and, it, and the Bible is gonna end up in your image, looking just like you. How much can you help you? Not that much. Okay, so let's, let's have a bit of humility and, and a bit of epistemological awareness here. Um, so gender is good. Think about, and this is brief. Think about the creation. Let's not go straight to the creation of man and woman. Think about the whole creation in Genesis one. Every, almost everything God makes, He makes in complementary pairs. Light, darkness. Day, night. Sea, sky. Sea, earth. Um, um, Sun, moon. So by the time, as we're ascending in complexity and beauty, we get to day six. If we're reading carefully, we ought to be expecting a complementary pair that complements like no other, in which that complementarity is beautiful. Sure enough, let us make man in our image. Let us make man, where's the, where's the compliment? Man and woman in our image. It's the third time he says in our image, and it's for the man and woman. There's an express, beautiful conveyance of God's image in a complementary pair, man and woman. And what does that say? Different, distinct, equally God's image, equally worthwhile. Equal dignity, but different and distinct, just like the rest of creation. It's God's order. It's the way he's made things. And to deny this is to assault. This is straight from the text. The text connects gender and the complementarity of the sexes directly to the image of God. If we assault gender, we assault the image of God. You know who hates the image of God? Satan. He hates it, and he's smarter than you. And what if he is going to ruin and mar and corrupt that image, what is he going to do? He's going to go after gender, and he's going to wreck it. He's going to level it, and he's going to say, it doesn't matter. Make it whatever you want it to be. You are the masters of your destiny. Does that sound like anything that we haven't read yet but that we're getting to in a couple chapters? I'm telling you, this is a key part, guys, not of a human construct, of God's beautiful creation and the way that he wants to image himself through that complementarity, gender. It's front and center in the text. And lastly, and briefly, more briefly, briefly than I'd like, but not more briefly than you'd like, um, a couple minutes, um, and then I close. Let me just say this one thing, point three. What, so what? It, we started with what it's not about. We've spent a lot of time on what it is about. Huge themes that pop out, boom, boom, boom. Age of the universe is not really the central thing. We'll get to that next week. Finally, it's about Israel. So what it's not about, what it is about. And just as a kind of a surprise and a kind of, huh? It's fun. To, it's centrally about Israel. And this is a different way of reading the text, but it's a, it's a contextual way of reading the text. And you have to read it with the rest of scriptures. Let me give you one point, okay? How is the creation account before Abraham and before the people of God, before the Hebrews, before Israel, how is the creation account about Israel? Let me give you one point. Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-2 says this. The earth, was, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was what? Hovering over the face of the waters. Do you know the only, okay, Moses wrote Genesis. Our Savior attests to this, by the way. He attests to Moses as the author of the Torah, or the foundation of the Scriptures, the law, the teaching, the first five books, otherwise known as the Pentateuch, Penta means five, of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote those, okay? He wrote those coming out of Egypt for a people in the wilderness before they were going to enter the promised land. Think about, every time you read a text, you have to think about author and audience. This was Moses writing to a people who were in a howling waste that was empty and void, about to enter into a garden land, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. The only other time this word hovering and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, the only other time it appears in the Pentateuch, and it only appears one more time in the whole Hebrew Bible, is at the end of Deuteronomy. The beginning of what Moses is writing, Genesis 1, 2, and the very end, Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11. You know what it says? It says this. It says, he found him in a desert land. He is God and him is Israel. God found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest. Here's the word, that flutters, same word in the Hebrew, hubbers, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. That language, Isaiah picks up on it later, doesn't he, and writes about how God carries us on eagles' wings. That word is the only, it starts the Pentateuch or the Torah, the writings of Moses, and it finishes, and that's the only two times it's mentioned. You know what that's called? It's called an inclusio in Hebrew literary. It's called a bookend. Moses is saying all this is about creation, but it's also about how God made a people for himself through which he will reverse the curse. He took them just like he took Adam and he put them in a garden land from a howling waste and he put his affections on them. And just like Adam and Eve, they rejected him. And just like Adam and Eve, he had to, through his mercy, cast them east, east outside of the garden. But he brought them back and ultimately He sent his own son, the second Adam and the true Israel, the true son of God, to do what Adam failed to do, to do what Israel did not do, to obey him from the heart, but then to be cast out himself. Christ was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. Why? For you. He didn't deserve to be. He, for the first time in the history of ever, earned paradise, but he gave it to you. And he was cast out because that's what you deserved, and he stepped in. He stepped into your place, and he took the hit as your shield, and he gave you the blessing that he's earned. And what does faith do? Faith in Christ brings you to him and gives you all the benefits that he deserves conferred upon you. Faith. Faith in him. Isn't that beautiful? This cosmology written by Moses to the second generation of Israelites whose parents had been who parents had died because of disobedience in the wilderness. They're about, they're poised to enter the promised land. And Moses gives them this. Don't go back. God is doing, he's going to bring about a new creation through you. He's going to bring a Messiah. And sure enough, he does. Um, that's what this book is about. Um, it's, it's not about the age of the earth. Okay. Um, we don't, quickly, and then I'm done, I'm sorry. We don't need to be scared. We don't need to pit the science, science against the Bible. Number two, um, just based on the order and description of events in Genesis 1, the chance this is not the word of God is mathematically highly improbable, if not impossible. We can trust his word. It's written by men, uh, uh, by, by him, by God, through men. Thirdly, it's not about the age of the universe. That said, an age-old universe threatens a literal historical reading of Genesis Um, an old universe, excuse me, threatens a literal historical reading of Genesis 1 exactly zero percent. So it's okay. Um, I'm going to skip that one, and I'm just going to say what I did earlier and finish with this. As we move ahead, again, I think it's worth repeating, and I want you to take this with you as we move ahead together. Um, As we move ahead, Keep in mind the fact that there are going to be things about this. If this is the word of God, if God is God and this is his word to us, it is going to challenge us. If it doesn't challenge you, you should scratch your head and go, what is this? This can't be God's word. I'm too comfortable with it. God, if he's God, is going to speak to us in ways that lovingly challenge us. There are going to be things that tickle your fancy that you love. We all love the anti-sexist, anti-racist, humans have dignity. What's not to love about that? Super forward thinking. But wait a minute. Men and women are distinct in role, different in role, but equal in dignity. Um, uh, speaking against homosexuality is not God's best plan. Speaking about marriage is between a man and a woman and committed faithfulness and not, you know, uh, polygamous. These things in our culture, they make us squirm. But we can't pick and choose. And if we do, it's not going to end up helping us at all. It's just going to end up looking exactly like we do. We're, we will end up making of God's word something that looks exactly like us. We will be idol- idolaters, making in the image of man, um, making the image of God into the image of man. So I just want to say, let's walk into this together, receiving all of it humbly, taking it to what we know, submitting ourselves to it, working through it together, not checking our brains in at the door, but knowing that it's going to confront us and our culture in certain places. Right? Um, So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for um, your word. It's so good. You're so good. Uh, there's nothing else like it, Lord. It, it leads us to life. It leads us to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we just, we bless you. Um, I think if you're a people here, I pray that you bless them in Jesus' name. Um, work your new creation through us. For your glory, amen.